Well, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we are continuing our way through this letter. We find ourselves today at verses 31 through 39. Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. These are the words of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for not only... these words and these truths that are such a blessing to our souls, but Lord, we thank you that you are the one who backs them. You're the one who continues to sustain. You are the one that is for us, the one from which nothing can separate us. And so, Father, would you help us now as we consider these words and these verses today, Lord, would you help them to be uh, an anchor, a foundation for our lives, and that you would continue your good work in us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how can I know that God is for me? How can you know that God is for you? How can you know that God is on your side, that he is fighting for you? How can you know that today? You might be tempted to answer that question in maybe some different ways. I know that God is for me because I seem to be succeeding in my career. I know that God is for me because my relationships are strong and healthy. My 401k is doing well. My health is good. I'm in a good spot, therefore God must be for me. Well, if that's how you think, then the opposite would also be true. When circumstances are bad, when money is little, when health is deteriorating, when relationships are a mess, then that must mean that God is against me. 
Job would counsel us a bit there and say, he would remind us that the same God that gives is also the same God that sometimes takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So our confidence and our assurance must be rooted in something more than and beyond our experiences of today. So whether things are going well or whether things are falling apart, Romans 8, 31 through 39 is still true for the believer. That's exactly what Paul teaches us here, that God is for us. Notice in verse 31, he begins with a question. He has a lot of questions in, this, in these verses. There's a lot of questions he asks, but he begins with this question. What then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? Well, you may initially think, well, what things are you talking about? Well, most likely Paul is at least talking about everything he has said since chapter 5, verse 1. Most agree that Paul is referring to everything that he's written since the first of the letter, all eight chapters. Basically, everything that he's written to this point, it's as if Paul pauses for a moment here in his own writing, and he reflects back upon the wealth of truth that he has just penned and draws an important conclusion. God is for me. Church at Rome, God is for you. Christians, God is for us. Some say Paul was likely thinking of Psalm 56 when he wrote these words. In Psalm 56, we find David in a moment of trial. He was surrounded at this particular moment by the Philistines, was in threat of his life. He was fearful, and he writes this psalm in Psalm 56, and it's a familiar psalm maybe to some of us, and it's where he says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Verse 8, he says, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And notice what he then says in verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Brothers and sisters, that is Paul's glorious conclusion up until this point, that God is for us, that God is working all these things. We saw that in verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all these wonderful truths, the fact that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, the fact that we are co-heirs with Christ, the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the fact that we are set free from the power of sin, the fact that, verse 1 of chapter 5, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things that God has done in the life of the believer points to the fact that God is for us. It's a point that 
of our message today is simply put that, that God is for us and no one can ultimately oppose us. No one can ultimately oppose us because we are victors through the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, I can hardly, I, 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 can, I can think of no greater truth today. In some ways, this summarizes the whole of the gospel, doesn't it? In some ways, this summarizes the whole of Romans, that God is for us. What better truth can you come up with today? I can't. You can't surpass that fact to, to know that God is for you. It's hard to imagine any greater reality than that. And friend, this is exactly what we want you to know today. Christian, or maybe you're here today and not a Christian, we want you to, we've been praying, I've been praying, even this morning I was praying that, Lord, as we consider these wonderful truths and these wonderful familiar verses today, that they would not just be merely familiar, warm, fuzzy verses for our lives, that we can kind of leave here feeling good and warm today, but that we would leave here with absolute confidence and assurance and trust in a holy God who loves his children and he cares for every need they have. Friend, I want you to leave here today knowing that God is for you. So then the question comes, well, how do we know that? Well, we can point to the things that he's talked about, but then he kind of summarizes basically everything that he's talked about up until this point. He summarizes that in the rest of these verses today. So how can we be sure that God is for us? We want to answer that question today with four observations. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a question. It's a rhetorical question that you can turn into an imperative. God is for you, therefore no one can stand against you. How can we be sure of that? Well, that's what he does in the rest of the verses to explain how you can know that truth. All four answers are found in response to four other questions. You can see that in verse 31, verse 33, verse 34, and verse 35. You look at that. Verse 31, who can be against us? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Verse 35, who shall separate us? Let's look at these demonstrations or proofs, we could say, that God is for us. Proof number one, we know that God is for us because no one can ultimately oppose us No one can ultimately oppose us. You see that there in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do Christians know? How do you know that God is for you and that nothing can defeat you? According to verse 32, it's because God has given us the greatest gift imaginable. He gave his own son for our sake. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now this idea of not sparing his own son really points us back to the Old Testament, to a story, a scene that took place in Genesis chapter 22. This is language that's familiar to that particular chapter of the Bible. In chapter 22, Abraham was asked, 
to take his son Isaac to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. And in obedience, Abraham goes. He places Isaac on the altar, he binds him to the wood, and he takes out his knife to do the sacrifice, at which, in verse 12, God calls out to Abraham and says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know you fear God. And he spares Isaac's life and provides a substitute. Glorious picture, a foreshadow of the great work of atonement God would do through Christ. Isaac's life was spared and a substitute was provided. Fast forward a thousand years later, on a different mountain, another son would be bound and nailed to a cross, but this son would not be spared. This son would die, and this son would actually be the substitute. The Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is why we can stand confidently God has given us the greatest gift imaginable by giving his own son so that we could find total victory over sin and death. So God being for us has its deepest demonstration in the giving of his son for us. So you you can think about it this way. If If you wonder, if you truly wonder whether or not God is for you, all you need to do is look to the cross. He spared no expense for your sake. Notice here that Paul points, the point Paul's making goes from the greater to the lesser. You see that in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God has done the greater thing of sacrificing his own son for us, then he will most certainly provide us the lesser things of granting us all things. Imagine with me for a moment that I was going to take my family on a cruise of the Mediterranean. I don't know why I picked the Mediterranean. They have probably no interest to go to that part of the world. I would love it. I've saved up. I've paid all the expenses for the cruise. I've paid the airfare to get us over to Europe. Paid the hotel that's required before and after. I mean, I've thrown down some serious cash for this trip. And then imagine the morning of our departure that we're supposed to get up and make our way to the airport and begin this long journey, this trip. We load all of our luggage, we get in the car, and we drive to the airport. And upon arriving at the airport, it says, parking, $10 a day. And my response is, can you believe that? They want to charge me $10 a day to park my car in this cement lawn filled with other cars. They want to charge me, the gall that they have to charge me $10 a day to park my car. I mean, that's going to be, depending on the length of the trip, that that could be $100, $200. Forget it. Trip canceled. I'm not paying $10 to park my car. Now, that would be absurd, wouldn't it? Do you think my family would be happy with me at the moment? Do you think that any of my friends or other family members would think that I would have any kind of rational thought patterns in my life to cancel a trip that I've forked out thousands of dollars for only because I refuse to pay for parking? Obviously, that sounds absurd, doesn't it? Friend, that's exactly the point that Paul is making here with God. Do you think that God doing the greatest thing that you could ever contemplate Paying the greatest 
price that you could ever imagine by giving his own son for your sake. Do you think for a moment that God willing to do that for you would somehow leave you or abandon you or somehow pull back his other promises to get you home? And I can't think, can't, can't even imagine that God having spared no expense having spared no expense by sending his own son to die in our place, would not give us all things. Now that all things there needs to be explained. That's not all things that you think would be great. Right? Okay, this, this is, is God promising me here that I can get anything I want? I mean, does this include Cars? And clothes. The all things, I think, we can connect right back to the verse, verses before it where he says in verse 28, knowing that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This same all things is, I think, applicable here where he is giving us everything we need to get home to glory. He's done the greatest thing we can imagine. And because of that, he will graciously give you everything you need to get you to heaven. And we just need to ask ourselves, do we think at times, I think sometimes we wonder, don't we? we? We begin to question God, we begin to doubt God, we begin to wonder if God is truly for us because all of these things are happening in my life. It's at those moments we just need to stop for, for a minute and come to passages like this and be reminded that God in his infinite love and in his marvelous grace spared no expense by giving and sacrificing his own son for our sake. You think that God would do less for believers after they are saved than he did for them prior to their salvation? While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He did the greatest thing while we were yet his enemies, do you not think that he will do wonderful things while we were his children? So, proof number one is that no one can oppose us because God has done the greatest thing by giving his own son for us. Proof number two is no one can charge us. You see that in verse 33. He sets it up as a question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen it is God who justifies. So he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Implied answer, no one. Paul is using language of the courtroom here, judicial language. It likely points to the day. He's likely thinking about the day when we will all stand before God. God being our judge and we will give account for our lives. It's as if Paul is considering that scene and he's asking, who will testify against you on that day? Now, there could be several possibilities. Satan, the great accuser, our enemies, perhaps they will seek to testify against us. And I mean, really, you don't have to look past yourself, do you? Your own sin. Your own sin is evidence enough that you deserve to be judged and condemned. 
You know, many of the accusations that Satan, our enemies, or even our own sins would, would level at us are, are true, aren't they? We are sinners. But the one thing that will be true on that day for the believer is that, we'll, is that though we stand before God, though we stand to give account of our lives before a holy and righteous judge, Christ will testify on our behalf and declare that our sins have been covered in full. Who is to bring any charge? No one. Because it is God who justifies. The Supreme Court is the highest court in our nation. And each year, it's around 7,000 cases are submitted to the Supreme Court for consideration and they're asked to review. And typically each year, they choose to review between 100 and 150 cases. That's not many when you consider 7,000. And in those 100 to 150 cases, once the Supreme Court has given its decision or its opinion, it's as if things are kind of set in stone. No lower court can supersede the Supreme Court's opinion. Well, friend, there's, there's a higher court than the Supreme Court. And every single one of our cases will be heard there. Your case, my case, everyone. This court that's higher than the Supreme Court is not just selecting a few cases to consider. and It's considering all of our case. But for all those chosen and secure in Christ, there will be a not guilty verdict. And that verdict will stand for all of eternity and nothing, friend, can supersede it. Nothing. No one can charge us. Brothers and sisters, you, can, you and I can face the future judgment that awaits us all because we, we can face that day with confidence and assurance because we have a secure standing before God thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf for our justification, the, for our declaration of righteousness. Go back to verses 29 and 30 and you see that, that wonderful golden chain of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. From being foreknown to being glorified, all of those are kept unbroken chain of hope. Friends, this is huge. Because it's, it, it, I, hear, I hear things that, that are contrary to this. I, I hear things coming from the mouths of Christians that, that contradict this. Here, here's what I often hear. When thinking about that future day, when thinking about heaven, people, people will say things like, I hope I get to heaven. I hope I've done enough. I hope I make it. If that kind of language comes out of your mouth, you've not understood the gospel. If you, if you say, well, I, I hope I make it to heaven, meaning, unsure of how things are going to go down, hopefully things kind of lean towards my favor on that day. If that's kind of your approach to eternal life, you've heard a different gospel. 
You've heard a different message. Friend, it has nothing to do with you on whether or not you make it to heaven. If it had everything to do with you, none of us are going. None of us. But friend, if you've truly repented of your sins and placed your full hope in Jesus Christ, listen, it's settled. You're in. You're in. None of this, I hope I get there, I, I hope things work out, or I hope I've done enough, I hope things go, you know, that's just a, such a works-based mentality. Friend, if you're unsure of whether or not you will stand justified before God on that day, then either your faith is weak or you don't understand the gospel. The good news for you and for me is that God who is holy and the God who is holy demands holiness and perfection and yet all of us fall short of that. All of us. So, so based on our merit, based upon our good works, based upon our behavior or, or, or our efforts, all of us fall short. But God being gracious and God being merciful sends forth his son into the world, sparing no expense. Sends his son into the world, a, a life that Jesus lives of perfection. He lives the life we should have, and he dies the death we deserve, doesn't he? He's nailed to the cross, and he bears the penalty of sin. We say, well, how did he bear the penalty of sin? He, he didn't sin. He never sinned. He lived a life of perfection. He lived a life of complete obedience to the God's law, and yet he died on a cross. What he does, he, he dies on the cross, taking your guilt, taking your sin. He is the substitute that stands in your place if you would but look, look to him and trust in him, friend. So if you want to have confidence, if you want to have assurance, if you want to know 100% whether or not you're going to stand on that day of judgment and be welcomed with open arms into the kingdom of God forever and ever, then friend, place your hope in Christ. Look to Jesus Christ, embrace him by faith, and trust in him because he is your only hope. Don't try to get there on your own because you will fall short. No one can charge us because we've been justified. Number three, no one can condemn us. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Connected very closely to the previous verse, here's the point. If no one can accuse us, if no one can charge us, then no one can condemn us. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Four things that Christ does there to remove all condemnation. He dies, he was raised, he's at the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes for us. Check that out. Jesus is interceding for us. We saw in 826 that the Spirit is interceding for us. Friend, just more proof that God is for you. He's praying for you. He died for you, he was raised for you, he's at the right hand of the Father, Christ is, and he's interceding for us. Listen, Paul wrote in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. 
Listen, here's the good news. The, the, the very one, the only one that could condemn you was condemned for you. The only one that has every right to condemn you was actually condemned for you. Verse 3, chapter 8, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Not only that, he was raised from the dead and he intercedes for us even as we speak. Christ is our heavenly advocate. He is our great high priest. Friend, your your lawyer, we could say, is already pleading your case in heaven. And so when you're tempted to despair over your sins and your struggles, when you're tempted to question whether or not God is truly for you, just remember that Christ died for you Christ was raised for you. Christ is at the right hand of the Father and is interceding for you right now. So when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Who is to condemn us? If you're in Christ, no one, friend. There's no condemnation. But then we need to see number four. No one can separate us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God? We've seen who, who who shall be against us? Who shall bring any charge? Who shall condemn? And now who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Notice there's a transition of sorts here. Paul moves from considering those people, those who would attempt to charge or condemn us judicially, to focus more on anything that might separate us relationally. So that the word who there in verse 35 could also be translated what shall separate us. It's moving really more from personal accusers to things that might seem to separate us relationally from God. And again, he concludes nothing can separate us he gives a list list of potential candidates doesn't he all of which might tempt the believer to question God's love and care for them look he says who shall separate us from the love of Christ here's some potentials shall tribulation this idea of 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 being squeezed under pressure severe adversity as a Christian We know that we will face tribulation. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? No. What about distress? Similar similar to tribulation, but carries the idea of this strict confinement, outward hardship. There are many experiences that we have in life that may lead us to question God's love for us. God, if you truly loved me, why did this happen? We will all ask that question at some point in our lives if you've not already asked it many times before. 
distress. Persecution is a real issue for the early church and for many, many, many believers today. More people persecuted today than ever have been before. Persecution doesn't point to God's absence, but rather God's presence. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, then know this, they're going to persecute you. And so when you're persecuted for your faith, you're in good company. Persecution isn't a mark of God's love being removed. What about famine? Even when our basic necessities are being threatened, does that mean that God is removing his love for us? Nakedness, and that doesn't refer to nudity here, but being destitute or poor or needy. The idea of being vulnerable or unprotected. So if you're poor, does that mean that God doesn't love you? It's what the prosperity gospel would want you to believe, and it's a lie. Danger. Paul has his own testimony to point to when it comes to danger. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there was the daily pressure on me, of my anxiety for all the churches. And this is a brother that knew danger quite well. This was a brother that knew all of these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger. You say, well, Paul's just writing here in Romans from his high and lofty office. What does he know about danger? He knows a lot about danger. What does he know about hardship? He knows everything about hardship. He had everyone against him. And then sword, even death. Quotes from Psalm 44 there in verse 36 of Romans 8. For your sake we are being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So whether it's extreme poverty or persecution or even death, Paul concludes we are still loved by God. None of these things can separate us from God's love. In fact, we are more than conquerors, he says in verse 37. Literally, super conquerors. Superman, that dude ain't got nothing on us. We're super conquerors in Christ. It may seem as if you're defeated. But friend, be reminded, you come out on the winning side. One day, the great reformer Martin Luther was feeling quite down. He had a lot going on. The Pope was on his case. His colleagues were fighting among themselves. He felt the heavy pressure that came with being a professor and pastor and father, husband. On top of all of these outward struggles, he also suffered significantly with kidney stones. And one day he was in his house and his wife Katie had draped a black cloth over the door 
and put on a black dress, which is a cultural symbol of that day that someone had died. And the story is told as Luther moped around the house and saw the black cloth and Katie's black dress. He, he said, on top of everything else, who's died? To which Katie responded, God has died. Taken aback, Luther looked at his wife with puzzlement and said, God is not dead, that's blasphemy. To which Katie responded, it sure seems like he's dead the way that you're acting. And that was a turning point in Luther's life. And we have Katie to thank for the Reformation. <laughs> Luther thanked his wife. He went immediately to his desk and wrote in Latin the word for he lives. Completely changed him. Brothers and sisters, we must not mope through life. What do you have to mope over? Our God is not only alive, He has secured our victory. We are victors. We are victors through Him who loved us. Notice what Paul says as he lists that, that list, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or a sword. Notice what he says in verse 37. He says, no, these things don't separate us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Notice, we're never told that God will remove these things. He says, in these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Paul ends this amazing chapter by saying, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure, I'm persuaded, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, come up with anything, anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He considers all possible threats from all possible angles. He considers every threat from every conceivable direction and concludes nothing, absolutely nothing, now or in the future, within or without the world, human or spiritual, can separate us from God's amazing love. Who can be against us? No one. Who shall charge us? No one. Who shall condemn us? No one. Who can separate us? No one. Paul says, verse 38, for I am sure. Can you say that? Friend, can you, can you say that today? Can you say that from the depths of your heart? I am sure. I am persuaded, I am convinced, I am certain that though hell may come at me, heaven has won me. Can you say that today? Can you say with David, this I know, that God is for me. Can you say with Paul, for I am sure nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Romans 8 begins with no condemnation in verse 1, and it ends in verse 39 with no separation. 
There is no condemnation and there is no separation. What an anchor of hope we have in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For I am sure, friend, that is what we want you to have. That is what we all want. That is what the Holy Spirit has inspired these words for our sake today so that we can know, so that we can be sure, so that we can be certain that we have a faithful God regardless of what we experience and encounter in this life. We have a faithful God that foreknew us, he chose us, he called us, he justified us, and he, friends, will glorify us and no one can do anything about it. Glory be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful hope. What assurance you give. So Lord, my prayer right now is for people who may hear this this morning and they, they've, they don't have this kind of assurance. They don't have this kind of confidence. Father, would you just open their hearts Tend to their hearts right now, Father, and, and give them a firm foundation. Father, would you help them even as they leave here today to, maybe they came tossed about by the winds and waves of this world. Maybe they came here today just so full of uncertainty, so full of anxiety, so full of fear. Father, would you, would you help them to leave here today with hope? with assurance, with confidence. Father, it's my prayer that, that we all would know this truth, that we all would know that you, God, are for us. And Lord, the demonstration of that was in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the security and the assurance and the hope that we have in him. Father, would you help us as believers to grow in that security, to grow in that confidence, to grow? Lord, would you strengthen our weak faith? Would you strengthen our hearts so that we would know? And with David and with Paul, we could say, this I know. This I know. God is for me. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.